الجزيرة بودكاست Controlling the Congress, U.S. Republicans were hoping to secure an easy majority in the House, but Democrats defied expectations and performed better in Tuesday's midterm. So what will this mean for Biden's agenda and U.S. politics? I'm Patty Culhane, and you're listening to the Inside Story podcast, where we dissect, analyze, and help define major global stories. Let's now bring in our guests. Joining me here in Washington, D.C., we have Christine Chen. She is the executive director of the Asian Pacific Islander American Vote. Christine served on the executive committee of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Adam Goodman is a Republican strategist and Edward R. Murrow, senior fellow at Tufts University Fletcher. And Amisha Cross is a Democratic strategist and a political commentator. A warm welcome to the program. So I want to start with this. This is if the House, if the Republicans take the House, and Democrats are celebrating. So I think people across the globe are going, wait, if you're going to lose the House, why are you celebrating? Well, here's why. Obama, in his midterm, he lost 63 seats. Bush lost 30. We're talking maybe, I mean, as we sit here, we don't know, but it looks like it's not going to be the red wave. So, Adam, I want to start with you. You said there was going to be a red, not just a red wave, a red tsunami. Well, I, I was right, except not nationally. I was right in Florida. Um, as it turned out, it was it was all that in Florida. You cited the stats up front, and you're you're totally right. The average is like 36 seats turnover in the in the midterm in the modern era. Since like the 36, Civil War, right? Okay. So you say, well, why? We are in a whole different ball game right now, and the reason is that we have vote by mail, and vote by mail has made a midterm. A presidential level event. Does that make sense? So usually we say, oh, you know, we're going to have some time off here. We have a midterm. Not many people are going to show up, you know, and that, that usually advantages the out party, the party that doesn't control the White House or and or one or both members of the House of Congress. Let me just explain for our viewers who, because voting in America hasn't always been easy, right? Because often you have to wait in line for hours. And it takes a commitment. So that's mail-in ballots change everything. It, it does. And what that did is it brought younger voters in. Because younger voters, we always, you know, in, in, I've been in the business, you know, nearly 40 years. We would kind of write that off in the midterm. People, under, voters under 30, not much to worry about. They generally don't turn up. They did turn up big by mail. Uh, and also the, the more what you might call the casual voter. One, the, the voters that aren't always all that civic engage, civically engaged, they also said, well, gosh, all I have to do is drop something in the mail. I can be a part of the process. And the final thing is, it's a good comment on America that everybody wants to kind of be a part of the game. Uh, and I don't mean game in a, in a pejorative way. They really want to be involved. They want their voice to be heard. And now in midterm, which again used to be, you know, a, a kind of a Passover between presidential campaigns, is now a major league event in America. And we saw that last night. Amisha, what do you make of this, the, the turnout? And I was struck by the videos of the kids in college. They were waiting in line for hours. But it was driving that. It, it was exciting. I, I think that, well, fraternities and sororities, specifically those who are the Divine Nine, shout out to them, have been doing a lot of recruitment and a lot of work on college campuses. HBC. HBCUs, <laughs> Divine Nine, black, historically black fraternities and sororities. Um, in addition to a lot of advocacy groups that are led by millennials and Gen Z that are out here really making sure that they get this population to care about the election process, to care about policies and advocacy, and to move beyond social media advocacy. Everybody tweets. Everybody's on TikTok. TikTok doesn't vote. Tweeting doesn't vote. Holding your sign outside doesn't vote. You have to vote. 
But I do want to step back to something that was just said, um, because it kind of made it sound like mail-in balloting was new. We've had mail-in ballots for generations in this country. What we saw was during the pandemic, there was more of a push to do it and to do it earlier. Historically speaking, mail-in ballots were used by people who were in the military who wanted to vote back home. They were used by people in rural areas because it was harder to get to a polling place. Now we see that expansion. We see it where a lot of minority voters are using them, a lot of inner-city voters are using them. People are using them for their convenience. They did that during the pandemic. That really kind of shifted upwards just because they didn't want to be in these long lines or risk getting COVID. But since then, we've still seen that uptick. Well, Christina, I wanted to ask you, what does this mean, do you think, for the presidential election? Because for as long as I've been covering politics, which is not as long as you, <laughs> but close, as long as I've been covering politics, it was the set. The working class voter voted for the Democrats. The college-educated suburbanites, they voted for the Republicans. It is like somebody put the demographics in a blender and has just been spinning it around for eight years and like things are shooting out right. and you don't know where everyone's going to land. What is going on? Well, the demographics have constantly been changing. You look at the census 2020, you've seen the increase from the Asian American and Pacific Islander and the Latino communities growing. They're growing in states that were not in play before, but now they are. So you look at Georgia, you look at Nevada, Arizona, uh, Pennsylvania, right? And I think going, going back to the early vote, you know, for the Asian American community, we know that in 2020, almost three out of four Asian voters voted early or by mail. That was the most preferred way. And even um, for 2022, we know that 26% um, actually chose to actually increase their um, participation from 2018 by early voting. So that has actually increased our participation. And it's also for immigrant voters. It's also about being able to sit at home with your family to actually get the um, translation assistance to actually go over your ballot and be able to not feel pressure to actually go to the ballot and uh, be under a time clock to actually cash your ballot. I think one of the issues that our audience cares most about, and it was fascinating to me that this was such a focus worldwide because people kept saying, the president kept saying, this is about the future of democracy. Will democracy survive in America? So I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but briefly to each of you, what does this, this result or what we think the result's going to be and the massive turnout, what does that say to you about where, is democracy okay? I don't think that we can judge it by if <clears throat> democracy is okay, but we can say that a lot of Americans rejected uh, autocratic lean. A lot of Americans rejected what Trump represented. A lot of Americans rejected the kind of candidates that Trump put forth, in large part because they were election deniers, open election deniers, even after court after court and many Trump-appointed judges said that there was no election fraud. These people still went out and said it. And the vestiges of January 6th, how, you know, how that American terrorism event really is still reflective in our society. And we've seen the outgrowth of a lot of domestic terrorism, domestic violence. We've seen the anti-Semitism rise across social media. Um, there are a lot of people in this country who are quite frankly uncomfortable with that. And I think that in those candidates that seemingly represented or were too close in coaxing that type of behavior, there was a large rejection of that. Adam? I think the biggest issue in America is intolerance. And across all aisles. Uh, and, and you know how we tend to model ourselves when we're kids uh, by what we see from our parents and, and, and older people. Uh, I think when you see political leaders, actually not even just leaders, politicians, both sides of the aisle, who are not behaving the way we thought they think they should behave uh, and bringing serious issues to the fore, not trying to one-up each other, 
not trying to tear each other down, but actually get something done. The intolerance is, begins with the people in the process. And I, I think that if there's anything we take away from this, there's actually some hope, and this will sound odd. The reason that there's going to be a close margin, most likely, when it's all said and done in the House of Representatives, and let's just assume that the projections, as we're seeing from ABC and others, are, are going to be that Republicans probably take it by an eyelash, right? And the Senate's going to be somewhat split. There is an opportunity in what they call the lame duck session. That's the period between this election and the, uh, the next Congress in January, where a lot of things could usually don't get done. There might be a lot of things to get done and will get done because the smaller you have a majority, the more likely it is that, and with both parties in play, the more likely it is you actually will be incented to get things done. It's an opportunity for America to take a step forward as opposed to be paralyzed with what they think is a gridlocked election. Christine, I'm going to get to you in a second, but I want to challenge you on that a little bit because mm -hmm. this both sides argument is, uh, I don't know if we're there still. I mean, cite the Democrat that you think is inciting violence, or help me with that. It's, it's less about, it's a great question, it's less about <laughs> inciting violence. It's, in, it's inciting one way of looking at the world. Uh, and I, I, I think... Uh, it's a little balanced, though. <laughs> well, no, I know, I know there this... There are several Republicans who incited violence. Nancy Pelosi's husband literally got which attacked the, in his Which, home. by the way, is horrible, and is another sign of the times. But it's not just about the political process, it's everybody in America. Uh, where you, we're all nervous to have conversations like this that are open, where we share information. We're okay if we disagree with something, but we're not saying, okay, how do I take advantage of this? How do I, again, one-up somebody? I, I, that has to be changed in America. But if the political leaders in this country are not going to take that as a cue, if they're not doing it, I think it's asking a lot that the people in America suddenly are expected to do just that. Did you want to weigh in on this? So it's, I know you're. It's, it's, it's hard for me to accept that this <coughs> measuring is equal because we literally had people who have instigated violence and spoken out about certain things or quoted certain things that Donald Trump said in the process of them instigating such violence. That up to and includes a terror plot, a kidnapping and murder plot for a sitting U.S. governor in um, in Gretchen Whitmer up to and including what we just saw happen with Nancy Pelosi's uh, husband, all the threats that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has gotten, even on the day of January 6th, where people talked about murdering and raping her. This is coming from conservatives. This is coming from people who bought into the Trump playbook. That is not seen on the other side. So I think we have to be very strategic <coughs> when we have this conversation and very real because there is no equivalent here. Well, see, that's, that's the problem. So I, I, I hear what you're saying, but the problem you said you're, you're saying is it's coming from one side. I categorically reject that. I think that what happened in the Capitol on January 6th was horrific. We should pray that never happens again. That's a society that's starting to, to, to tear apart a bit, to it eat seems. Itself. But when you start to point the finger of blame at one part of society, and you say, that's the reason why. I pointed the people who down, actually did well, it. Well, okay, but beyond, <laughs> beyond the, we'll call the insurrectionists, because that was horrible, inexcusable. But we have to have a more tolerant conversation that there are things about the right and the left that you like and don't like, and be, be able to discuss that and share that without challenging with the shortcuts. The shortcut, oh, well, that means you, you subscribe to the insurrection. That means you subscribe to what the threat that was you're talking about with Governor Whitmer in Michigan, horrific, wrong, and the, the attack on um, Pelosi's husband, horrific. That's terrible. But if you're going to point out 
that if you're going to say, okay, and the reason for that is the 50% of America over there, the conversation in America stops. There is no enlightened conversation, and that's what I'm hoping in this divided Congress. It sounds odd and counterintuitive. I'm thinking it is an opportunity for us to have that conversation. Everyone now has skin in the game. Uh, and I think that may be, an op may be a chance for all of us to talk through the serious issues of the day that we tend to shortcut and we tend to cheapen and we tend to get nowhere with. And one more thing. One thing that comes out of the election, people want to get things done. If there is a real message, can we get stuff done? It, both sides have skin in that game. Let's do that. And let's show we can do that even with a divided House, with a divided Congress, uh, and even a divided House in terms of the people of America. We do that, we're on the road to recovery. What I think I hear you, hear you saying is that if we start to have the old school Republicans and the old school Democrats actually come together and reset the debate, that maybe the crazies can, not, not the extremists. I, I grew know. up around a lot of those people. Wonderful people, Democrats and Republicans from every walk of life. It was an honor and privilege to serve, and they acted that way. They acted with honor. Uh, we don't see that today. A return to that absolutely would make a difference. So, Christine, did democracy survive? I, I think to live it, another day? I think it did <laughs> just because the growth of new people, new voters entering into this election, the growth of, um, of de all the different demographics participating in that. But I think you're also going to see a larger number of independent voters, right? Um, because there's not enough information about what truly are you standing for? What kind of solutions are you bringing up? Because a lot of the tactics that have been used um, during these campaigns has been mudslinging and mis- and disinformation, which is also a whole other topic that we could talk about that you know is, is very distracting when you know, I'm dealing with voters that are first-time voters. Um, some of them are <coughs> limited English proficient. When we contact them, they are asking us, well, do you have more information about the candidates? They don't have that basic information because it's not being translated or the uh, parties are not effectively reaching out to this new base of voters. I'm so enjoying this conversation because we came into it like we're looking at it the numbers game, right? <laughs> but what I'm hearing from you is a completely different take from all three of you is that maybe this resets the ugliness, right? And I think that is not anything I expected to hear from you. But I do want to talk again because this is an international channel. There's concern if Republicans take the House um, and one of the things that uh, both I heard from a Republican and a Democrat in the last show we did is that it's harder for Kevin McCarthy to rule if he only gets five. Oh, because then the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Jim Jordans, they can hold hostage uh, everything. Mm -hmm. And he, Kevin McCarthy doesn't really have a record of going over and scooping up a handful of Democrats. So they're going to play, it's going to get, it, it, if, unless your predictions are right and we return to a new normal of <laughs> like it used to be, it could get very ugly. So one of the biggest questions the world has is because McCarthy, Kevin McCarthy, the likely next Speaker of the House said, oh, we're going to cut back on Ukraine aid. And he's had a lot of members. So d does aid get cut? I believe aid will get reduced. It's not going to get cut. We've heard from him as well as some other, I would consider extreme commenters on the right, um, about basically reducing aid or completely eradicating aid to Ukraine, partially because to a certain swath of the American public, they want that because of the inflationary cost, because they see money going to Ukraine that they don't believe is, that they believe could be used, better utilized here in America. Um, the isolationist posture of many Americans isn't something that came from Trumpism. They've been like that for a while. But I don't think that they're 
the Republicans are going to get a sizable enough lead in the House to be able to make that type of decision. And that's one of the things I'm the most thankful for. So what do you Did you want to go? Well, I, 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 actually, this is going to be right. I agree with you. I actually think that Republicans uh, will be supportive of Ukraine, but they're not, it's not going to be a, what they see it to be a blank check. They're going to ask for some accountability for the funding and everything else. And you're right, because there, there are all these other priorities in America. It's, it's a difficult sell, frankly. Yes, we support the people of Ukraine. It's horrible what Putin is doing, et cetera. On the other hand, we have so much we need to take care of in this country. Aren't we, and with inflation you know, raging as it is, it's a more difficult, more nuanced decision. And I think the Republican House is going to be right on the, the hot plate there early on. So, Repu uh, yeah, Republicans are really angry at Donald Trump right now. And they, uh, I mean, the commentators, uh, remember he said, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, I'd get away with it. And pretty much he's like, had an insurrection, two impeachments, still the leader of the party. Um, ben Shapiro, who's a, our audience might not know, he's very conservative. He tweeted out that Donald Trump was a major drag on the Republicans from his picks to his antics. Trump picked bad candidates and then proceeded to a word I can't say on television, on the Republicans who lost and didn't sufficiently bend the knee. This will have, 2020, this will have a 2024 impact. So to each, each of you, is Trumpism dead? I mean, we did have 150 election deniers that actually won their elections, so... Trumpism is alive and well. It just can't stand with Trump. We're seeing Trumpism take off with people like Ron DeSantis, who is a smarter, more strategic, younger version of Donald Trump. Like, he took the playbook and he's just running it a lot better. Um, there, I think that there are going to be several people who will learn from that. We know how, how much the, that win game was or get was in Florida for Ron DeSantis on literally a playbook that is quite similar to what Trump was trying to do in 2016 before he went kind of crazy with it and turned into an eagle maniac. But... <laughs> I, I think that what we're going to see is someone who is about to... He's losing control fast. And that's a difficult thing for Donald Trump because he wants to be the kingmaker. And if anything, this election cycle has proven that he is not and that there is another heir apparent and it is not Donald Trump. And the Republican Party, quite frankly, has wanted to move beyond him since January 6th. They wanted somebody who was able to pull in the types of crowds and the types of groups that he did because he was able to extend the reach of the Republican Party to a certain extent. They just don't want it to come along with the Donald Trump baggage. See, but here's the thing, Adam. I don't see the base abandoning him. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's real, too. The base is pretty rock solid uh, in some ways behind Trump. He did not have a good night. I mean, no one can say uh, the former president had a wonderful midterm. It was a tough night. And there's something else on the horizon. I come from Florida. And you talk about Governor DeSantis. Uh, he's doing something that's in no one's playbook. It's not in the ex former president's playbook. And I don't, I don't see any other uh, parallel with any other Republican in the country. He is going at governing Florida and talking out on issues. And you've seen you know, the things about education, taking on Disney. None of these are in any playbook. None of these came from an advisor. None of these came from a pollster. It came from him. He is a very highly educated, I think, principled leader who said, I'm going to get the job done. I'm not going to sweat the criticisms and the small stuff that usually comes along with that. And his message and his achievements are so fresh. It's one of the things I think Americans are looking for, that this is the kind of leadership we could really get behind. And so for, and that, for that reason, I think the former president has got, will have his hands full with someone that just feels like He's hit the ground and he's running. But here's the thing, I think, and when we, because again, we were talking about this might be a kumbaya moment. We're all going to become normal again. Ron DeSantis has very extreme positions 
Um, he has the Don't Say Gay Bill, which means educators can't even mention the fact that there might be someone who's not straight. He has, he's gone after Disney because he said they went after the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is a very anti-Republican thing. Not known for going after corporations, right? That's not really their thing. He's gone after transgender students. And then he took a busload of, of, of migrants from Texas, a state he's not the governor of, and flew them to Martha's Vineyard to prove a point, which actually likely will get them a visa because that is likely means that he engaged in human trafficking. So how do you, to get back to the Republican mm -hmm. Party that, and the Congress that you want, mm -hmm. how do you do that if that guy, this guy, is the standard bearer? Because that's not... If Donald Trump is... No, Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, okay. Well, you hit the, the high points on the negative side of the line. Uh, the achievements, can we start at least give you like 10 seconds of that? Massive uh, uh, increases in education, in protecting the environment, criminal justice reform right out of the box when he was governor. He's one of the most popular governors before any of this happened. And there's a sense of opportunity and freedom that people feel generally in Florida. And if you want a referendum on that, you want a number on that, 19-point win over Charlie Chris, who is a long-time, very popular former governor of Florida. So there's something that people are really liking. The engagement with Disney. The engagement with Disney is a sign of where the Republican Party is trying to move, by the way, which is away from being the party of big business to the party of the working class. And to the points you were making earlier about um, the kind of the, the outreach into uh, Latinos and Asian Americans, yeah, that is the reason I, he for had that. a huge and night. So he Latinos. is on to that this, faster this, and better, I think, than any other Republican leader right now. That's why he's worth watching. This has been such a great discussion. I enjoyed it so much. So thanks to all of our guests. We have uh, Anisha Cross, Adam Goodman, and Christine Chen. That's it for the Inside Story podcast. This episode was produced by Mohammed El Achi, Nihad Al Abedi, Osama Aluni, Akila Joseph, and Jimmy Genahan. Studio sound by Luke Rower, and the program was edited by Lynn Inguin and Joe DeFrias. Be sure to subscribe to the Inside Story podcast to catch every episode. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again on Friday. Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. In season four, we meet the spark of the civil rights movement in the United States. Rosa Parks took a stand by sitting down, but that's not all she did. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts.